0: michael it is good to talk to you i've been around a lot of social studies people and none of them have been you i know i know i had adventures in parenting this weekend Ah, okay well you know if there's any good excuse to stay home from a big social studies event it's to be with your family
1: yeah now you of course went to kufa and the ncss conference right
0: Absolutely, yeah. So I have been in San Francisco, and as I'm recording this, I'm still in San Francisco. I've been here since Tuesday night, and it is now Sunday, and I'm getting ready to head home. It's been a fun time. San Francisco is a great city to have a conference, an expensive city to have a conference.
1: It's also a hilly city.
0: It is also a hilly city. uh, I walked over to City Lights Books, which is a really famous bookstore, and some of the walk back was was straight uphill, pretty vertical incline. But it was great. So I got in Tuesday night. As you know, and probably some of our listeners know, I am a member of CUFA, which is the College and University Faculty Assembly. I've always wondered what it's good for. Yeah, and a lot of people say, what does it mean? Well, the College and University Faculty Assembly of the National Council for the Social Studies. So you're a part of NCSS. It's a part of NCSS, yeah, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. Because sometimes it does its own thing, some people have said in the past that we should have a social studies in our name because most people don't know about the NCSS connection. But Kufa meets on Wednesday and Thursday primarily. It has some stuff on Friday. And so those are a lot of the social studies professors from around the country who prepare pre-service teachers who are doing research and theory and all kinds of stuff. And so that's the first couple days. So you're a big wig in that, right? Definitely would not say I'm a big wig. I am a participant.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But well, I'm on the board, which is fun. And I, I've been kind of working with the board, and now I'm officially on the board. So I've been really involved in it. And, you know, there's a lot of discussions about how do we connect with teachers, how do we share research with teachers, how do we learn from teachers, I think, are, are really big focuses. And so, but then right after that, you have um, things like International Assembly, which is a group that meets on Friday to talk about international research and, and issues. Yeah. And, and then really on, on Friday, NCSS really starts in full on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you see lots of speakers, presenters poster sessions, all kinds
1: of stuff going on. So oh, a, I love it. It's a social studies utopia. It's like an extravaganza. Everyone's there, like so many great people, mm-hmm. uh, so many great organizations. Oh, I loved going. I've been to the one in Boston, obviously. Last year was in D.C. Before it was in New Orleans. That was a good time. And I know next year it's in Chicago, which I'm definitely going yeah, it's it's You're exciting. Crazy. And then in
0: t- and then 2019, I'm looking forward to being in Texas. It's in Austin in 2019. Austin, so. Texas. Yeah, so that'll be fun. That's just a drive for me. But yeah, it's a it was a blast. You know, one of the highlights, obviously, was our SS chat team uh, put on an unconference yeah. this year. So it was uh, Chris Hitchcock and Mary Owen Holmes. We got there early on Saturday morning at 8 a.m. and put on an unconference, which is where we basically planned our own event. And we had a nice little turnout at a few tables where people sat around and just learned about what they wanted to learn about. So that's always fun
1: to put that on. We've been doing that for a few years. So an unconference is when there's no agenda. People get there and they create the agenda. And then you kind of go where you want to, where wherever you want to talk about or wherever you want to develop. I've been to a number of these and like, I know there's like EdCamp is a big one. They have lots of different EdCamps. I do enjoy the SSChat unconference at the count. I think
0: think two things I always point out to people is one, people often think it has no structure. Well, we build the structure in the morning. And so what it is, is it's a very organic structure, the things people are interested in. And the second thing is that I always tell people when you're at tables or in rooms at at unconferences, those are not presenters. It's just people you're learning with. And so if you want to go to another session or you want to get up midway in the discussion, you should just do it. It's called the rule of two feet. And that's what's fun about unconferences. You like to learn, like some cases I like to learn about, We did some virtual reality and geographic tools table, but I wanted to go go learn about like, for example, uh, ways to do project-based learning. And so I got up midway through and went over to the other table and that's really fun. And I think our SS chat group, is a great way to IRL, see people in real
1: life. Oh yeah. No, so I didn't go, obviously. Is there a way for me to like connect to whatever happened there? Michael, you are in luck. I walked around
0: the what? conference, and I did interviews with as many people as I could. And This was our first time doing it, so we really hope you enjoy it. But I was able to go to CUFA, interview some of the award winners, interview some of the people that plan CUFA, and talk to a variety of people. And We talked to some great people. I talked to Diana Hess, who's really considered the leader in how you talk about controversial public issues in the classroom. I talked to James Banks, the father of multicultural education, who was, a, an N- who was the former NCSS president in 1982, he pointed out to me. So we just got a variety of really good people. We had some old friends. We had Kevin Maywison, and we had Amanda Vickery, some old guests on on the podcast. And then I went to NCSS and stopped by, talked to people attending, stopped by a poster presentation, talked to people, talked to some teachers doing C3 stuff, and then caught some of the big speakers too, including, and and we'll finish it off with uh, talking to uh, Larry Pasca about what's going on for NCSS next. That is awesome. I can't wait to listen. Well, how about without further ado then, let's just go ahead and get into it, right? Let's go. All right. So here is our review of some of the things that happened at CUFA and the National Council for the Social Studies Annual Conferences in 2017 in San Francisco, California. Enjoy. I am here with this year's Distinguished Career in Social Studies Research Award winner, Diana Hess. Congratulations on your award.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Can you tell us, so you won a career achievement award for all of your work can you tell us about what your life's work has been
3: so i started as a high school social studies teacher in Downers grove illinois in 1979 and after teaching for many years and being president of the uh, teachers union i went to work for the constitutional rights foundation in chicago where i organized professional development and developed curriculum and did lots of different kinds of civic education programs As a consequence of those um, both experiences, teaching and working at Constitutional Rights Foundations of Chicago, I became really interested in better understanding what teachers who are really good at teaching kids how to discuss highly controversial political issues actually do. So with that question in mind, I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Washington in Seattle to work with uh, Walter Parker, Mm -hmm. who is a civic education expert and had done an awful lot of work in classroom discussion. In addition, James Banks was on my committee and was quite influential in my work. So while there I did my first study, which was a study of middle and high school teachers who had been nominated as being exceptionally good at teaching kids how to talk about these kinds of uh, challenging political issues. And that study was a models of wisdom study I was interested in whether the teachers were doing things that were similar Mm -hmm. or whether or not this was was idiosyncratic work and I came away with a number of findings that helped me understand and I hope helped the field begin to understand both what are some similarities in terms Mm -hmm. of high quality and also what are some important questions like the question about what criteria we should use to decide what's a matter of legitimate controversy that should be in the curriculum. Another big question about assessment and how might we assess students engagement in discussions. When I left the University of Washington with my PhD, I was hired as an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and immediately started another study on the same topic but in a classroom where Um, students were participating in a required class that uh, was necessary for high school graduation and the main focus of that class was learning how to deliberate highly controversial political issues so in that study I continued to look at the teachers um, and tried to understand their practice but I also was really turning my gaze to the students and how they were experiencing and learning from what was happening in the classroom that was a really interesting study because Uh, we were able to show, I think, pretty uh, concretely that students can get much better at doing this with the right kind of opportunities and instruction. We also showed that social class really mattered in significant ways, and that um, set of findings then took me into my third and largest study that emanated in the book, The Political Classroom, that came out a couple of years ago. It's a longitudinal study in three different states, that looked at over a 1,000 students, most of them were juniors and seniors in high school. They were in all sorts of different kinds of Mm -hmm. schools, public and private, and sectarian and secular, charter schools and non-charter schools, and in all of these schools, we found teachers who were really good at doing this. So again, we kind of focused on that core question, like, well, what does it look like to do this Mm -hmm. well? And then also really tried to understand how the political context of these communities mattered. And from that study, we developed a lot of um, findings around ideological diversity or lack thereof in classrooms and what that meant in terms of what teachers needed to do. We also worked a lot on the issue of whether teachers should share or withhold their views. We got a lot of evidence around that, that question that I think has been you know, pretty helpful. And we followed them two and four Mm -hmm. years out after high school. So we could get a a pretty good sense of how kids thought about the experiences that they had had and what differences it made for their lives. So this uh, trio of studies um, has been published in two different books, Controversy in the Classroom and the Political Classroom. But it's, um, I think, been helpful. Certainly, it's answered a lot of questions for me, although I always have more at the Mm -hmm, end than I had mm -hmm. at the beginning. But I've worked really closely, and now Paula McAvoy, who was the co-author of The Political Classroom, is doing a huge amount of work with teachers, Mm -hmm. so kind of professional development all over the country to help teachers learn how to do this better, and especially now when, quite frankly, this is much harder to do than it was a year ago. So today, when I gave my talk, I really walked through the three studies and what we, what I had learned. And um, it was really fun. It was a great Mm -hmm. opportunity.
0: Mm -hmm. It's tremendous line of inquiry you've taken through, through these different studies. You get to talk to teachers all the time. You get to see what teachers are trying to do and the struggles they face in these difficult times. What advice would you have for teachers who want to start bringing in controversial issues into their classroom?
3: Well, the first thing is don't give up on why it's so important to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm afraid that some teachers are just finding it too difficult or the teachers actually are are finding a way to do it but their administrators are telling them they shouldn't.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: I think now more than ever, we need to make sure that all young people have really high-quality civic education. And we know that discussions of these kinds of issues are one component, they're for sure not the only component, but they're one component of high-quality civic education. So it's just really important that we do more, not less. We actually, I think, need to double down on why this Mm -hmm. is so important. And I think we also need to make sure that teachers are getting lots of help and that teachers are having lots of opportunities themselves to develop their skills. So I think we need more professional development than we have going on right now. I think there are a lot of teachers who are really interested in getting some help teaching in a very polarized time. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is hard work.
5: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for all your work. If people want to learn more, you know, pick up her two books and she has some great practitioner articles. I I know I use those with my uh, pre-service teachers. So thank you for joining us and congratulations on your awards.
3: Great. Thank you so much.
0: All right, I'm here with Tony Castro, who is the 2016-2017 chair of CUFA, which is the college and university faculty assembly. And so for people that don't know, Tony, can you tell us a little bit about what CUFA is?
6: Yeah, sure. Uh, CUFA uh, started off as an assembly group in which university faculty members, used to come to the National Council for the Social Studies and have their own conversations about uh, the kinds of research that we have in social studies education, how best to prepare pre-service teachers who will become social studies teachers, and what are some of the policies and the implications of policies across the board that affect not only social studies as a whole, but the preparation and research overall in social studies education. So the group was founded about 1967 and became more formalized in the 1970s, and it's a Since then, it's been growing in terms of its influence and its organization across universities and across other institutions that support social studies. That's generally sort of the history of that. The purpose that we have now in CUFA, primarily, is we are considered by many to be the research arm of the National Council for the Social Studies. And in that role, we support quality research that informs how we prepare teachers, that informs our professional development series that we give teachers in the classrooms, and the ways that we communicate with policymakers about the future of social studies in education.
0: CUFA members are mostly those professors in colleges across the United States who teach teachers how to do social studies. Tony, can you tell us how CUFA has changed over time and even in the last year when you've been chair?
6: Yes, CUFA has really grown and expanded in terms of its membership. Our work goes beyond just looking at research. It now goes into how we communicate with teachers in the field, how we work with community educators and partners to support ideas around citizenship and social justice, Much of our development in our conference is about creating deeper and more rich partnerships, not only within universities, but within policymakers, within community leaders, within school districts and school leaders. And in particular, we try to always have some kind of community connection with the place we're visiting for that conference of that year.
0: Tony, that sounds really great, and thank you for your service to CUFA. I know as a member of CUFA, it's been a great year, and you've been a great leader, and we'll keep seeing you around CUFA at sessions and, and seeing the new research you're doing.
6: Thank you very much. I look forward to supporting NCSS, the social studies, and CUFA for many years.
0: Thank you. All right. We're here with the 2017 CUFA Exemplary Research and Social Studies Award winner, Kevin Maywison. Congratulations on your award.
7: Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it.
0: Tell us a little bit about the research paper that was published in Theory and Research in Social Education that won you this award. Can I plug the old version of your podcast yeah, or the, the yeah, previous okay. version of your podcast? Okay.
7: So we, we talked about this paper, Happy Professional Development in an, in an Unhappy Time. I'm learning to teach for historical thinking in a high-stakes accountability context, quick synopsis. It's a comparative case study of a couple of teachers who were part of a a professional development program that was designed to promote um, historical thinking in a way that is not often learned and taught in schools. And uh, what happened in that process, I guess somewhat unsurprisingly, especially given that their teaching context is one in which the the school district in which they taught in um, is a school district that's under a great deal of state scrutiny for test performance. Uh, this was a circumstance in which uh, the metrics by which the schools in that district are held accountable uh, didn't match up necessarily with the kinds of things that we were teaching the teachers to do or trying to get the teachers to do. In other words, you know, they're they're held accountable for uh, performance on students' high-stakes test scores, which generally are the kinds of you know, the kinds of questions and tasks that do not historical thinking make. So what ended up (laughs) happening was a lot of the teachers uh, in this program, and particularly uh, the two that I focused on in the comparative case study, bumped up against the accountability uh, demands and requirements of the school, the schools that they taught in when they were trying to implement the new practices that they were learning in their classrooms and so the paper is really a story about what that looked like how that worked um, and what sorts of things facilitated their efforts to take up new practices and then what sorts of things got in the way and so with some recommendations at the end for ways in which professional development programmers and coordinators should take Uh, school's political contextual or institutional contextual characteristics into play when they're designing, implementing, and then looking at what happens as a result of professional development.
0: So you're saying that all professional development, all school, Achievement or success can't be reduced to simple measures or simple programs. Is that kind of one of the lessons to take away?
7: Yeah, that's one of the lessons. Um, and then, you know, as I, had, as I just mentioned, another one of the lessons related to that is when that happens, um, it's really up to people who are designing and implementing professional development programs to mediate those effects. You know, one, one of the things that I recommend, for example, is sort of a social network analysis kind of process where professional development leaders um, look at what kinds of other school leaders within the district are responsible for what kinds of decisions and how the teachers in their programs interact with those folks so that they can help the teachers figure out ways to take up new practices in their classrooms if indeed there's, you know, some stymieing that's happening at the the school building level. For example, there was uh, one of the teachers in the program, the one who had the hardest time trying new things or taking up new professional development outcomes, you know, she uh had this really cool activity um that involved uh looking at different sources of historical evidence and comparing and contrasting them and so on and so forth and when her administrator came in and saw her school principal came in and saw that lesson you know one of the comments that he made was yeah but you didn't have a, a test preparatory learning objective on the board and this is a test preparatory class so what are you doing to help the kids with the the high stakes assessment so you know that's kind of demoralizing but also mm-hmm. defeats the the purpose of the, of the professional development program and it, it makes it difficult when you put teachers in a position of having to mediate those things on their own, it makes it difficult to take up the new, uh, the new practices and so I think professional development programmers have to think about what they want to do to basically play that sort of intermediary role.
0: Is there much other research being done about the professional development of social studies teachers or would you say this is kind of an, an area we neglect? There's not a ton
7: of work that's being done around that, which is one of the reasons why I draw from a couple of different literatures to sort of help me make my case. Um, One is a literature related to professional development in high stakes accountability contexts in general, and then another is a literature related to Teachers who are trying to sort of implement, you know, reform-minded practices, for lack of a better phrase, in settings in which those practices are not generally cultivated or nurtured. And so I drew a lot from literature outside of social studies education because... Uh, it helped, helped me make the arguments that I needed to make within social studies education. So maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, this is kind of a new and different, you know, one of the criteria for this award is that, it, you know, it should push the field forward in a different way. You know, because we're not attending to professional development and accountability context in social studies, you know, this potentially could be
0: helpful in doing that. Dr. Mamison, I hope that your research leads to happier professional development for social studies teachers. Thank you so much, and and congratulations. And
7: happier happier times for them, right? Yeah, thank
0: you. And happier times. Thank you, and congratulations. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. I'm here with the 2017 Larry Metcalf Exemplary Dissertation Award winner, Noreen Nassim Rodriguez, and her dissertation was titled Hidden in History Examining Asian American Elementary Teachers' Enactment of Asian American History. Congratulations.
2: Thank you so much.
0: So, can you tell us a little bit about what your dissertation was about?
2: I studied three elementary Asian American teachers who taught in the same school district in the state of Texas and they were the only Asian-American teachers on their campus, and Mm -hmm. they taught classes of students that were not Asian-American, Asian-American content that they themselves did not learn in school. So it was really interesting to see the ways that their own experiences as Asian American others, their own experiences feeling marginalized in schools and never hearing their own histories really impacted the ways that they chose to approach the teaching of Asian American history.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the things that all three of the teachers taught was Japanese American incarceration and they really relied heavily on children's literature to do that and so I think there's a lot that we can learn from their work in terms of how we can broaden our understandings of citizenship particularly to think about Ideas like cultural citizenship where we we center the experiences of marginalized groups when we talk about what it means to be a citizen and to use children's literature when we know that there are absences in the curriculum and in the textbook. How can children's literature bring those stories into the classroom in ways that are digestible for students but still engaging?
0: So how did the students react to these curriculums?
2: They found it really engaging and I think some of my favorite examples came from a second grade classroom Mm -hmm. where it was 100% students of color And as they read the stories of Japanese-American youth as they were being sent to the camps, they were making connections to discrimination and experiences of racism faced by Mm African-Americans, by Native Americans, by themselves. And so that, I think, was really powerful to behold and then to write about because clearly kids are making these connections. It's silly for us to think that young children aren't ready for these kinds of conversations and that they can't handle these kinds of difficult histories. They're ready for it and they want to talk about it.
0: Did a lot of the conversations they have happen around the picture books or the children's books while they were reading them? Is that part of what the teachers did?
2: Yes, and one of the things that also happened in all of the classrooms was that the students often initiated connections to contemporary issues. Hmm. So in the city where the study took place, During some of these lessons, various incidents of Islamophobia were occurring, and the students often brought that stuff up as they read about these experiences of discrimination that were happening to Asian Americans.
0: What do you think we can learn from these teachers to take into a variety of classrooms? In this case, you had Asian American teachers who were able to bring those histories into their schools. Do most of your lessons apply specifically to those histories, or do you think that there's some broader things we can take from them also?
2: I think the biggest takeaway is the notion that citizenship is often equated with whiteness Mm -hmm. and teachers need to actively work to disrupt that in a number of ways and so we know that when teachers tend to include the histories of marginalized peoples it tends to be Mm african-americans and we need to look broader than that and also look across to figure out how look across different racial groups to look for alliances and solidarity just so that we can broaden those understandings of what it means to be citizen how citizens can act and ways that citizens can enact change in their communities so i think What I learned in terms of how the teachers reconceptualize citizenship is something that we can use in any classroom, regardless of population and regardless of the teacher's identity.
0: Congratulations on winning the Dissertation Research Award, and have a great time at CUFA. Thank you so much. So over the last couple days CUFA has been holding sessions and one of the cool things CUFA does is it has affiliated groups and forums and so I'm here with previous Visions of Education guest Amanda Vickery who is very involved in CUFA and specifically with the Scholars of Color Forum. Can you tell us a little bit about what's been happening at CUFA Amanda?
8: Yeah, so the Scholars of Color Faculty Forum was created in 2015 as a way to create spaces for our scholars of color to promote scholarship and collaboration and just a sense of community within the Kufa community. And so this year what we did, we have a dedicated scholars of color session. This year we titled it racial realism or getting real with our racial realism. And we were inspired by the work of Dr. Tyrone Howard and the words that he gave last year at our conference telling us to get real about our racial ra- realism. Mm. So this year we had a series of roundtable discussions and conversations around the themes of black lives matter, say her name, historical literacy, historical empathy, and in teaching critical notions of citizenship and then we ended our session with a discussant, Patrick Kamongan from University of San Francisco, where he talked about what racial realism looks like in action in the field with teacher preparation.
0: Wow, those sound like some really great discussions. So for people who couldn't attend CUFA, what are some takeaways that you have, both for people doing research in, in kind of the field or teachers who are practicing in their classroom? What can they take away from what um, people who participated in those sessions learned?
8: Yeah, so one thing that we were talking about in um, one of the roundtables that I was sitting at was how we're seeing kind of within the field of social studies education, we're seeing an emphasis on historical literacy and thinking about, you know, a lot of uh, states are um, guided by the edTPA, but then also recognizing the importance of teaching and using culturally relevant teaching and pedagogy and talking about social movements that are happening today. Black Lives Matter, DACA, uh, what's happening with, um, you know, the, the pipeline with indigenous communities. And so it's important for us to recognize that those don't need to be separate. We can combine them so you can teach notions of uh, critical historical thinking and historical literacy, but at the same time, talking about these important issues that your students are already talking about. Mm -hmm. And so let's just bring those conversations from the hallways, um, you know, from outside of school spaces to inside the classroom and use them. And so this is something that we're still thinking about, we're still wrestling with. So I encourage you to check out our Twitter feed at KUFA Scholars of Color Forum or find us on Facebook (laughs) and Twitter. Twitter's Kufa scholars of color form where we can continue these conversations and grow these
9: partnerships.
0: For teachers in the classroom, part of it is making almost thematic connections mm-hmm. and thinking about continuity and change. About how is Black Lives Matter similar to and different from, for example, African American civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s? Is that the kind of connections you were making?
8: Yeah, but then also thinking about it, it's how it's an iterate, iteration of it. Like we are, mm-hmm. we've never just kind of stopped fighting for civil rights. It's you know it's a continuation of it. It's not separate from it. But I would also have you think about how the students' lives, thinking about in- including the students' lives into the classroom, into curriculum, because the students are being affected by these issues. And so it's important for us to pull out that knowledge, that funds of, historical funds of knowledge, and to use that when we're teaching social studies.
0: That sounds like some great discussions. I'm sure you're all better teachers for it, so hopefully that was helpful. Thank you for joining us.
8: Thank you so much.
0: I am here with Kevin Kumashiro after his speech as one of the Kufa keynote panelists. He was joined by Christine Sleater and Wayne Au, and he gave a very riveting and inspiring speech. Uh, welcome to Kufa.
9: It's great to be here. I'm really loving what I hear, the kinds of work that you all are doing, and I was flattered to be a part of this opening session.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about your work and what you talked about in your speech?
9: Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of my research focuses on school reforms, and how we talk about reforms, because I'm really fascinated by reforms that maybe have a lot of research backing that don't have a lot of traction, as well as reforms, so-called reforms, that maybe have a lot of research that shows that it's really problematic, but they're still so seductively framed or talked about that it becomes really popular, and it becomes really widespread. Um, So some of what I was talking about in my lecture was some ways that we might wanna reframe the conversation and complicate the metaphors or the concepts we use to talk about what we teach, why we teach, and how we can teach in ways that more strongly and concertedly advance democracy and justice.
0: Our audience is mostly social studies scholars, social studies educators. What message would you say for social studies educators that wanna make a difference, make a more just world?
9: Yeah, you know, I think I began by talking about how I think so much of what we teach and learn, particularly in the social studies, teaches about differences and teaches mm-hmm. about social contexts, but maybe could go a little bit more deeply into some of the very complexities of these topics. Like how we understand differences has everything to do with not just who others are, but how we construct our understanding mm-hmm. of those differences and the relationship to ourselves. Or how we understand the problems that we face in our society. These are not just elements of the moments we find ourselves in, they have very long and sometimes very troubling global and historical contexts that would radically change how we think we solve these problems if we were to situate our understanding of these problems in those other contexts. So I think those are maybe two of the big points that I was trying to argue, is that we broaden our understanding with these kinds of contextualizations. And, you know, just a sum up, I would say I tried to conclude my talk by saying even we as those of us who are in Higher education, those of us who do teacher preparation in particular, I think we need to hold ourselves accountable to asking, well, what has become both common practices and really commonsensical ways of thinking about who we are and the work we're supposed to do? Because I think too often, many of us who talk about social studies or education for democracy, for justice, for equity, whatever, we're great at the rhetoric, but we're not always great at living in our roles as educators and as teacher educators in ways that really trouble the assimilationist demands in higher education. So I think that thinking about being an advocate and being an activist really requires that we broaden how we understand that the academy forces us often to be counterproductive to those goals. and and also invites us to radically reimagine um, what our work could and should look like if we take seriously those ideals.
0: Thank you for the inspiring message and joining us
9: at CUFA. It's great to be here and um, thanks for all the work that you do. Thank you.
0: All right, we're here with Dr. James Banks after the CUFA uh, keynote panel discussion and uh, so we just wanted to catch up with him and see what he's up to. What are you doing at uh, CUFA and NCSS this year?
10: Because I, uh, with Walter Parker and Audra Osler from England, we did a a panel uh, this afternoon on civic education in a global context. And my latest book is from AERA. It's called Citizenship Education and Global Migration. And it deals with these issues. So we were talking about the book as well as talking about how important it is to educate students for global citizenship. And this is work that I do around the world. I just got back from Shanghai recently and before that I was in Mexico. This is a worldwide issue.
0: And you've been doing citizenship education for quite a while. Before you were born. For quite a while (laughs) and I mean you're in textbooks it says James Banks the father of multicultural education and you did some of this work at CUFA and NCSS da- dating ago. back quite a bit. Do you remember those? Well, those I was conferences? president
10: in 1982. Mm-hmm. And so I was just saying how Kufa had grown. Well, I gave the keynote address. I, I don't remember the year, but it was like a, it has grown enormously mm-hmm. since then. It was like a, the room was full, but I would guess it was at least half the size. Yeah. So it was pleasant to see how it's grown.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for stopping and talking with us and enjoy CUFA and NCSS.
10: Of course. I am enjoying it. Thank you, Dan.
0: I'm here right before an NCSS session, and we're going to be talking to some session presenters. And so real quick, if you guys want to introduce yourselves.
5: My name is Rebecca Valbuena. Kathy Marston. Karen Batista. Kathy Lindahl.
0: Jane Thompson. Can you all tell us what you're presenting on today?
5: Today we're presenting our work with the C3 framework, and it's our third year presenting together. We're in our full phase of implementation and today's presentation focuses on dimension 4, which is the taking action piece.
0: You've been doing this a few years, which is really cool to see how it builds up and you're able to present and share what you're doing. So what has the whole process been like? Can you give us kind of an overview?
5: process has been difficult but wonderful. We started when the C3 framework was relatively new and needed to learn it very well. So the first year, our goal was to implement by infusing compelling questions into our lessons and slowly that sort of changes the way you think and the way that you present information to students and the way students grasp it last year we focused on dimensions two and three and this year we really decided to focus on the most important piece which is the civics action and we're just gaining a lot of momentum our kids are learning a lot critically thinking, finding that relevance in social studies, and just enjoying the lessons in a way that we didn't think was possible.
0: Looking back on all this, what would you guys' advice be for schools and, and groups of teachers that are wanting to use the C3 framework as a way to kind of organize their curriculum and figure out their teaching? What What advice would you have for them?
5: My advice would be to jump in. Even if you can't get it perfect, just start trying a little bit at a time and have good people with you collaborate constantly share ideas and that's how excitement grows
0: cool so what's the biggest change in everybody's teaching been because of using the c3
4: compelling questions they now go into all aspects of my teaching they are constantly all over the room my fourth grade students as i teach the compelling questions they start wanting to know what they are and they start coming up with their own Mm -hmm. and they go mrs marston i have a compelling question for you it's like they're thinking in a higher level way, and once you start the inquiry process, you, would, you don't go back. <laughs> Can
0: you give us an example?
4: A compelling question is something that really doesn't have a quick and easy answer. The mm-hmm. students have to really think about it, delve into material, mm-hmm. contemplate, go back and forth, and maybe... Originally, they think an answer, and then they research, and then they modify their answer and change and come back. And, and the idea of what we're doing is, you know, what makes a good citizen? Mm-hmm. And there's all different facets of it, and the kids continually change what they think. We've had questions such as,
8: what causes war? Why do, why do wars start? Mm-hmm. This is all kind of a process. We were talking about process and how it is inquiry, looking into the question— and figuring out how they're going to find the research and answer it. Because the goal is for them to be able to find an answer and do some action on it. If they can find that research and follow through on the question, then they're, they're heading toward some sort of action.
0: So instead of just learning about war, students think about what's caused wars historically. And then when things happen in our present society, they have a lot more depth to be informed citizens, make judgments, take actions as they see necessary. Is that about right? Exactly. Wow, you guys sound like some good teachers. So we all need to do what they're doing in Glendora, California, right? Um, what, what school are you guys at? We're at all of the
5: schools, so we're okay. at a bunch of different we all ones. all represent yeah. different schools, different in, there are five. Yeah, five schools in our district.
0: Wow, so you don't all have to be teaching the exact same thing to collaborate on a project like this.
5: Where each, she's second, Second. third, fourth, fifth.
0: Wow, it sounds like you guys are all doing tremendous work. Good luck on your presentation and and good luck with your teaching. Thank Thank you. you. All right, I'm here walking the halls of NCSS and talking to people and so we're gonna see where people came from and why they're here. So can you tell us your name and where you came from?
6: Yes, I'm King Yada Bennett. I came from Atlanta, Georgia, Drew
0: Charter School. So, Kenyatta, why did you come to NCSS, and what are you hoping to get out of it?
6: Well, I came to see some other social studies professionals, but I'm also presenting with a group of teachers.
0: Great. What are you presenting on?
6: We're presenting on uh, student activism in a geography and art combined classroom.
0: That sounds awesome. Well, good luck with your presentation.
6: All right. Thanks a lot. Cool.
0: All right. Here's some other NCSS attendees, and so can you tell me your name and where you're from?
4: Uh, my name's Julie Trout. I'm from Seattle, Washington. Okay. My name's Claire DiGiulio. I'm also from Seattle, Washington.
0: So what are you guys here for, and what are you hoping to get out of NCSS? Uh,
4: we're actually presenters, and okay. we are presenting about the power of arts
5: integration and social justice, an experience that we've had at our school, at John Muir.
0: What's the case for teachers to use art for social justice?
5: Well, we found at our school that it really brought our students together and gave them a sense of belonging. And it gave us an opportunity to connect with their stories and all
4: with the lens of arts, but really addressing the access program and race equity issues.
0: Give me like an example of what part of it looks like.
4: Sure. So specifically, we partnered with the Phillips Museum in DC, and they had the Jacob Lawrence Great Migration Series at the Seattle Art Museum. And so our whole school got to go visit the Seattle Art Museum and do a series of integrative art lessons with our visual arts teacher and classroom teachers to explore why people move and migrate and compare and contrast their migration stories to those of uh, the black Americans in the 1900s. And we went off on that and it was great. That's
0: great work, you guys. Well, good luck in your session and enjoy NCSS. All right, thank
4: you. Thank you.
0: All right, I'm just walking through the hallways of, of the convention center and we're catching some more people seeing what they're doing here. So, can you tell us your name?
9: Uh, Queen Obama from Tennessee Tech in Cookville, Tennessee. Okay. Stephanie Richards from Tennessee Tech in Cookville, Tennessee.
0: All right, so tell me, what are you all doing here?
9: Uh, we, we actually presented, I I presented one, a a poster session on culture in your genes, Mm -hmm. which everybody like found like really interesting. So a lot of teachers came by and took the lesson plans that we created for it and hoping that they will. So the goal is bring something to share. That's Mm -hmm. how I learn what I do in my classroom. Take from, kind of borrow people's ideas and people borrow from you and just make teaching social studies great in the classroom We don't want to be the teachers that just hand out worksheets. We want the kids talking and thinking and giving their own opinions about things that are happening around them.
0: Making social studies come alive seems like a good lesson. So thank you two for stopping and talking to me. One of the fun things you can do at NCSS is you don't just go to sessions and rooms, but you can actually walk through poster session areas and talk to people who have presentations ready. And so as you can hear, there's people all around me talking, but I just stopped at an excellent session with Aubrey Southall. So Aubrey, tell me about what you're presenting on today.
11: My poster session is on incorporating and embedding Latinos into the US history curriculum so that students can see themselves and triumphant people in the classroom.
0: Cool. So what are some of the some of the resources, ideas that you have for a lesson?
11: All right. So some of the things I have is Nina Otero Warren. So she's one of my favorite Latina women. She was the first Latina to run for Congress in 1922 and we didn't get a Latina Congresswoman um, until almost 60 years later. She also fought for children's rights to speak Spanish in the hallways and on the playground. And she fought alongside Alice Paul, but is often left out of photos and recounts of the event.
0: We often don't even get Alice Paul in at all, much less uh, a lot of those women who are marginalized who may have participated in the suffragist movement. What other resources do you have? So
11: I also brought along some books that I used in my own classroom as an EL high school teacher and that I also use in a general education classroom. So one of my favorite to separate is never equal. It's by Duncan Tanatu and it goes through Sylvia Mendez's life um, mm-hmm. and her family's fight and Mendez versus Westminster.
2: Mm-hmm.
11: And I also have with it a young adult novel by Winifred Conkling called Sylvia and Aki that chronicles Sylvia Mendez's life but also Aki, who is an interned Japanese American girl. A lot of people don't know that Sylvia Mendez was living in the home of an interned family. The book is based on a true story and it shows two groups of people, Japanese Americans and Mexican Americans, not being allowed to go through the schooling of their choice during this time
0: period. Thank you so much for sharing with us a little bit about your presentation. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Peter Kuznick, and he just gave the closing remarks at NCSS to a pretty good audience, considering it's Sunday, the last day. And so we just wanted to ask him a few questions
12: real quick. We're going to start with, what do you remember from your social studies <laughs> classes in school? Well, my favorite teacher in high school was a social studies teacher. hmm and was a big inspiration to Mm -hmm. me. I started off in college pre-med, but then when I decided, this was during the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. I decided that studying biology and chemistry wasn't as relevant as I was looking for. I was very eager to go into history, Mm -hmm. and that's because I was inspired by a terrific history teacher in high school. And I just remember the history classes, the social studies classes as being the ones that engaged the real issues. Mm -hmm. The issues that I was interested in in the 1960s uh, and the ones that stuck with me. So I loved reading history and I thought that those were the most interesting classes I had in high school.
0: Absolutely. I think a lot of social studies teachers had that experience, had a good teacher who kind of set the stage for them.
12: College teachers. Yeah. I mean, why did we go on to be professors, because we had teachers in college who inspired us, who we wanted to emulate in many ways. But it's just the people who stretched your mind, the ones who challenged you, the ones who gave you new perspectives on the world. And those tended to be, in my experience, the social studies teachers. So I did have some good literature teachers. Mm -hmm. We read some great literature in high school. But in terms of the content, the social studies teachers were always the ones who uh, captured my imagination.
0: Well, speaking of content, um, you wrote The Untold History of the United States, which is kind of a textbook that teachers can use. So can you tell us a little bit how you think social studies educators might use your book?
12: Our, Our book is a terrific antidote to what the mainstream received orthodox wisdom about the United States is. Woodrow Wilson said after the Versailles Treaty, and now the world will know the United States as the savior of the world. That attitude has been constant in American history. Madeleine Albright, several years ago, said, uh, if we use force, it's because we're America. We're the indispensable nation. We stand taller and see farther than other countries. Uh, there's that attitude, mm-hmm. this idea about America being the indispensable nation, that the United States is different from all other countries, that other countries are motivated by greed or territorial aggrandizement or geostrategic gain, but the United States does things because we want to spread freedom and democracy, because we do them because they're right. And this notion of American exceptionalism clouds our vision of the history. Mm -hmm. And what Oliver and I were trying to do in Untold History was talk about how we got to George W. Bush. Oliver wanted to know if George W. Bush was an aberration when he invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, or whether this was a consistent part of uh, American history. And so we start in the 1890s, and we show the history of American militarism, U.S. interventionism, American counter-revolution. We pose the question of why do the richest eight people in the world have more wealth than the poorest 3.6 billion? That didn't happen by accident. How did this happen? Why did the United States and a couple of years ago sell seventy eight percent of the world 's arms? Why do the United States and Russia have ninety four percent of the world 's nuclear weapons? I mean what, you know what is uh, what 's going on in the world and what are the priorities and how can we make this a better world and that 's what we try, that's what we try to focus on and answer in untold history so it was a 12-part documentary film series on showtime now netflix uh, plus the 800 page book then we put out the concise untold history of the united states which was a shorter book based on the documentary scripts then we put out the young readers series the young Readers series uh, for middle school students and high school students volume one is out volume two will be out in august and there will be four volumes all together and we've got a graphic novel That's on Mm -hmm. the way. So we're trying to hit people in every way, and we've got an updated version of the big book coming out this summer, uh, which we're gonna cover 2012 to 2018. So the same question we asked about George W. Bush, we can ask about Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump an aberration, or is he part of mainstream America? And uh, we're gonna argue a little bit of both, that in terms of his style, he's an aberration, but in terms of his policies, at least his foreign policies, he's not that much out of the mainstream, is what we're going to argue.
0: Thank you for the preview of that. And then, so your talk today focused a lot on the Cold War nuclear threat and tying it a little bit to today. So what advice do you have for social studies educators teaching about historical and contemporary nuclear threats?
12: My advice is to do it, to teach it. (laughs) Uh, The problem is that nuclear weapons have fallen off people's radar, at least since the end of the Cold War in 1991. But the nuclear threat has not dissipated. And unfortunately, the conflict on the Korean Peninsula has made that abundantly clear again, that the possibility of nuclear war, we still have nine countries with nuclear weapons, another 40 with a technological capability of developing nuclear weapons. We still have more than 14,000 nuclear weapons in the world, and even a few hundred of them could trigger a partial nuclear winter and kill off billions and billions of people. So the nuclear threat is not abated, uh, but our thinking about it has has lessened. And what we do need to do, finally, is to get rid of the nuclear weapons. The United States has to agree to no first use policy. Ed Markey and Ted Liu in the Congress have introduced legislation to ban the United States from a preemptive nuclear attack, to say that the only circumstance under which a president is allowed to do that is if the United States has been attacked, because right now it's in Donald Trump's hands. There are several people, but mostly Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, who have veto power over the continued existence of the human species. We don't think that's healthy. And so I think that it's very important that the kids learn about Hiroshima and Nagasaki Learn about the nuclear arms race, nuclear testing. Uh, learn about the anti-nuclear movement and the possibility of eliminating nuclear weapons once and for all. We have to realize how close we've come repeatedly. The Cuban Missile Crisis is the most glaring example. But again today, as uh, Richard Haas, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations says, there's a 50-50 chance that we're going to go to war with North Korea. And what are the odds then of that turning nuclear? They're not negligible, so that's uh, we've got to make sure that that doesn't happen.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes, coming, talking to NCSs, and speaking with me. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Larry Pasca, the executive director of the National Council for the Social Studies. How are you doing, Larry?
13: doing very well Dan how are you i hope you're enjoying the conference
0: i am it's been a great conference so far so tell me what's this conference like for you if you're the executive director what are you doing at NCSS
13: Well, for me, this conference really is about pulling together all of our various educators from around the country, the groups they represent. So our conference, um, we represent K-12 classroom teachers, researchers and scholars in social studies, uh, school district administrators, uh, policymakers, folks with an interest in global education. So for me, it's really coordinating folks that really span the spectrum of social studies, all all of our disciplines, all of our interest groups, and bringing us together for several days of shared learning, um, making sure that the latest research into practice is happening, ensuring that we have time together to to talk and grow our social studies community, and then to listen from experts, listen to many of our featured speakers, our presenters, time with exhibitors to learn about the latest resources that are available for classrooms. So this is just really a a convening of our larger community.
0: What's kind of happening in social studies education right now?
13: So our theme this year is is really intended to say let's take a look at at the wider world um, and the issues that surround us in social studies. I think many of our sub-themes that relate to media literacy you're seeing, global connections and i think these are these are critical topics that are on the minds of many of our uh, community members and so you see that play out in in the various sessions um and i don't want to single any one theme out but i think you, you do see a through line across all the sessions so while we're talking about history and geography and, and civics and economics and other disciplines together psychology we also are talking about them together through the lens of inquiry we're looking at how we ensure that kids are civically engaged and i think you see those as, as through lines um, in our sessions and i personally just want to ensure that how does this conference theme and the sub-themes last throughout the year? How do we uh, how do we make this part of our work together as an organization? So how is this part of our collective research, our publications, um, the other, you know, webinars and institutes that we'll be offering? How, how does this? How do these questions become our our central theme throughout the year?
0: Right, and that's what I was thinking: is what's next for so- social studies? And so we have a, a year now until we we all get back together in Chicago. Uh, what what are your hopes for the next year?
13: I think it's. Uh, I think my biggest hope is that the learning that we that we um, began here um, this week continues throughout the year. Um, that we explore these themes deeply together. I hope that the connections that the networks that are established here, or maybe the connections that are reformed here, last and that they can spread out. And so, what I mean by that is, if folks find that they have a, a publishing interest together, that they that they do get together and they say, "Hey, let's build a research agenda together." If we have folks that say, "Hey, I want to I want to present with you and let let's go share a topic together in in other events around the country promoting social studies." And sharing our our practice let's do that and then as far as for NCSS you know we maintain a webinar program so we'll be announcing a series of webinars in the spring we're working right now on planning some summer institutes um, uh, leadership institutes as well as other chances for learning about inquiry Um, and we also are continuing our publications as well as giving members a chance to blog about social studies on our website and also forums like starting podcasting and experimenting Mm -hmm. with other technologies Um, we're excited to to work with you as well as others to to try to communicate social studies studies and multiple media throughout the year.
0: Thank you for all your work, Larry. We have visions of education. Are really hoping that we can help bring some of the messages that are coming from this conference and not just now but throughout the year. And so we're excited to keep talking social studies.
13: We're excited to work with you. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you. All right Michael. So that was
1: pretty much like attending the conference, wasn't it? Do <laughs> you know what it's not like attending the conference, but I feel like I got a good like, I don't know, like a sneak peek or a peek into what happened Um, and so I'm just you know revved up to go next year you know yeah well so we hope everyone does join us in Chicago
0: for a International Assembly NCSS all the things that are going to be there in Chicago then Austin the next year but you know in between we're gonna keep delivering that content to you on visions of education the SS chat network right Uh, there's plenty of online PD that NCSS does and there's lots of journal articles coming out, both the practitioner articles through NCSS and Kufa's theory and research and social education articles. So we've got a lot to learn before next year, right? Dan, thank you so much for bringing this to us. I absolutely appreciate it. I hope everyone enjoyed it. And we'll see you on the next Visions of Education podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretke. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.